I uh, keep going back and forth a little on how to, to do this class because uh, part of me wants to just read through the, the Bible with you and uh, almost have devotions, and then the other part uh, wants to uh, be able to look at each book and uh, give you kind of some idea about how to read it on your own, and I think both approaches are valuable for sure. Uh, but I think we're going to do more of uh, an overview of each book of the Bible and uh, especially think about why they were written and uh, try, to, try to talk a little bit about how to benefit from them as you, as you read the different books of the Bible. So uh, next week, we're going to do a little overview of, of Genesis, which I've been promising for a while now. But uh, this week, I want to think uh, about how we understand Genesis 1 through 3. So I was going to do an overview this evening, but then I thought, you know what, we need to talk about Genesis 1 through 3 a little. Could, we could really just talk about Genesis 1 through 11, but I want to talk about Genesis 1 through 3 uh, because it is challenging in our environment where we're living right now. Uh, when we're living, you open up your Bible, and it's like, wow, okay, I'm in a different world than everyone <laughs> that I meet pretty much right away from the very beginning. And uh, it can be hard for us to know what to do with it exactly. I know uh, for myself, I've always wanted to preach uh, Genesis. I love the book of Genesis. It's so important. Um, but I've been slow to preach Genesis because I'm always thinking about how do I preach those first three chapters, actually, in, in the context in which we live right now. Um, because there are so many great truths, like pretty much you can't understand the rest of the Bible without the first three pages. You take those out, somehow you get a Bible that starts on Genesis 4, you're going to be very confused about the rest. You can almost preach the whole Bible from Genesis 1 to 3, actually. Um, so it's, it's just so fundamental, and I guess that's part of why it's not surprising that it often comes under attack. And... Uh, and can be hard for us, and uh, I think can be a little bit challenging to know exactly how to preach because we uh, sometimes want to talk about science and all of those kinds of things, which is good, but at the same time, um, I'm not a, a scientist, and the book of Genesis wasn't written just to uh, talk about that, actually. And so um, I want us to think a little bit about how do we uh, interpret these chapters, like what do we actually do with them, and one of the reasons why I want to do that is because there are so many different interpretations, actually. If you, uh, if you start, um, I mean, there's obviously people who just don't believe the Bible is the Bible, but there also are a lot of different interpretations among people who would say they're believers. So. Uh, I, I saw recently even 10 different views on Genesis 1 through 3. So you have one view that we might call the young earth view. So that is just that God, what it says is what it says. And actually the earth is, uh, this is not exactly, this goes along with how they interpret the genealogies that are later but they would say, well, Genesis 1 to 3 and the genealogies, if you just read them as is, would lead you to think the earth is uh, pretty young. And then there's another view that you could call the mature creation view, which would say that just like God didn't create Adam at, as a baby, he created Adam as an adult. When God created the world, he created the world like an adult world, it, it, it's, he created it old, in a sense. It, it has the appearance of age. There's another view called the Revel Revelatory Day view. And so that talks about the six days that we read about in Genesis 1 as being six different days in Moses' life. And so they would say that when we read about those 24-hour days in Genesis 1, they are 24-hour days, but they are six different 24-hour days on which God revealed what happened on, in creation to Moses. There's another view they call the gap theory, and so uh, 
that view thinks that Genesis 1-1 is sort of like God creating the whole earth. And then there's a long time in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 that we don't really know much about. And uh, during that time, somehow there was problems, I guess, in the heavenly kingdom and the earth became chaotic. And so then um, what we see in Genesis 1-2 is God getting to work again. And in Genesis 1-3-31, God sort of restoring creation back to what he designed it to be. There's another view called the um, a local creation view. <laughs> And that is, uh, people think Genesis 1-1 is God created everything, and then Genesis 1-2 and Genesis 1-3-31 is about a work of God in a small area of the earth. Uh, There's another view called the intermittent day theory, and uh, that would say what we're reading here are six 24-hour days, uh, but there are large time gaps in between. So we'll say day one. That's what happened, and then we don't know how long there was in between day one and day two. Another view is called the day-age theory, and so they would say a day is not a day, really. A day is a period of time, and so God is just describing day one, what happened during a certain period of time. Another view that's kind of similar to that is the analogical day view, and uh, that idea is that when it talks about a day, it's talking about God's work day. So a day according to God. And we um, don't know how long a day is according to God, they would say. So evening, when it talks about morning and evening, it's just using like an analogy. Evening is when we rest. Evening is when God rested from his work. Morning is the beginning of a new work period for God. So that's like a, a day is helping us. I guess it's accommodating to our understanding um, Then there's another view that's uh, called the framework theory. And basically, the framework theory is saying that Genesis 1 uh, is not so much about chronology, about like, hey, day one, day two, day three. It's more like a literary technique um, to teach something. And so you read in the very second verse, it says, the earth was without form and void. So this was the condition. The earth was uh, without form and void. And then in, uh, this is just true. This part is true for sure. In in days uh, one through six, what happens is days one through three, God fixes the problem of the earth being without form. And then day four through six, he fills. He, He fixes the problem of emptiness. So it's like he creates the kingdoms in days one through three, and then he creates the kings or the things that are part of those kingdoms in days uh, four through four through six. And so they would say that it's more like um, when you went on vacation and uh, you wanted to, uh, you had a photo album, and so you might group the pictures in that photo album not so much by like the days of your vacation, but according to a theme. So like we surfed on one day. So all the pictures, or we surfed during our vacation. So all the pictures of you surfing would go on that one page. And then we went to restaurants and all the pictures of you going to restaurants went on the other page. And so there's some people who would say that's what Moses is doing here. He is using a literary form to uh, really say something about about God. And that, I guess, is the the final, more common interpretation, is that uh, Genesis 1 is not really about how God created the world. It's not so interested in what we might be interested in, um, the science of it. It's more interested in making a theological statement about God that he is the creator, and it wants you to know why he created he, and, and what he was creating everything for. And so there are a lot of different interpretations. <laughs> and uh, we can be overwhelmed as we approach Genesis 1 through 3. And so I want to think about how to think about it. And um, I want to do that by going back to the basics 
um, and thinking about some fundamental principles that we can and should agree on when we go to interpret a passage like this. And we're going to do that in a way that's different than we've done before. We're going to do that by working through an article by someone named Vern uh, Poitras. And so I put that article on the back table. Uh, if you didn't get it, uh, you might want to get it. But we're going to work through this, this article. And that's called Interpreting Genesis 1 through 3. And this is uh, what he says in the first paragraph. He says, how do we interpret Genesis 1 through 3 in a sound way? It's not so easy to find out just by listening to and reading modern interpreters. There are many voices, and they disagree with one another. I have only one main piece of advice. We learn how to read Genesis 1 through 3 wisely in the same way that we learn to read the best of the Bible wisely. And how is that? By taking to heart what the Bible itself says. Several aspects of biblical teaching need to be taken into account. And he starts with who God is. So as we come to read these three chapters that are very different for us, and certainly uh, the kind of chapters that people would look on us as foolish for believing, one of the most important questions that's going to impact the way we read these chapters is our answer to the question, is there a God? What kind of God is he? Who, who is God? So Poitras writes, is he a God who can create the world in the way that Genesis 1 describes? Is he the kind of God who could fashion the first woman from the rib of Adam as Genesis 2, 21 to 22 describes? Is he the kind of God who can speak in an audible voice from the top of Mount Sinai? Is he the kind of God who can multiply five loaves and two fish so that they feed 5,000 men? Because uh, we have to realize that many people don't think so. Uh, even before they open their Bible, they automatically come to the Bible with a view of uh, reality that is very different than the view of reality that we get in the Bible. And so most people approach the Bible today, uh, at least in our culture, with a materialistic, a materialist view of the world. And so, in other words, uh, they come to the Bible with a fundamental belief already. And so the thing about that fundamental belief is that they don't even think of it as a belief, which is kind of the ironic part. Um, Tim Keller is a pastor, and he talks about something he calls defeater beliefs. And what he says is that in each culture, there are things that people believe so deeply that they don't even think of them as beliefs. They think of them as facts. And so because they think of them as facts, they uh, can barely hear when you say something different because they think you're just speaking against facts. When in reality, if they thought a little more deeply and doubted themselves a little more, they would realize, oh, actually, this is a belief I have. This is a belief I have about reality. And different cultures have different defeater beliefs. So if I go to, uh, I don't know, uh, some Muslim country, and I talk to someone about the gospel, most people in that, Mus like a really tightly Muslim country, are not going to be thinking all religions are the same. So that's, but if I go to New York, city and talk to people about the gospel, most people there, are the first thing they're going to be thinking is, well, I don't need to listen to what he has to say because most all religions are the same. So different cultures disciple us in different beliefs, and sometimes those beliefs we pick up without even realizing we pick them up or that they're beliefs. And in our culture, I think certainly many people come to the Bible believing that, that all there is is what we see. So the world is composed of matter and motion. There's no personal God behind it. Therefore, the stories in Genesis 1 to 3 are just human stories. But the Bible begins with a very different message, right? If we just look at Genesis 1 verse 1, which we've done before, but it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And so what do we learn about God already there and in, and in the rest of this chapter? We learn that there is a God who exists outside of creation and before creation. So here's a circle. Everything that's created is within that circle. God actually is not in the circle. <laughs> He's outside the circle. He is able, though, to act in supernatural ways within creation. And he does. He's not just removed from creation. He, in Genesis 1-1, is the kind of God who's able to speak and things happen. He is clearly a transcendent king. So one of the big differences between Genesis 1, the story that the Bible tells, and like the stories that the people around Israel told about creation, because they had views of creation as well, is that uh, the, the stories that people made up about creation around the nation of Israel were about how the gods battled with one another, basically, and the result was creation. And it's this epic battle between gods that started humankind, really. And yet we read Genesis chapter 1, and we see very clearly that God stands alone. And if we knew more about the ancient Near East and we had the time to talk about it, there are some really specific ways that Moses makes that clear, uh, even in the way he tells this story. And so God is clearly the transcendent king, the God of the Bible, and he creates the world to, to work with a certain order. And so these ideas, just as we come to Genesis 1, we need to realize as we come to interpret these chapters, we need to appreciate that these ideas about God are in stark contrast. So you have philosophical materialism versus biblical theism. And so philosophical materialism thinks, okay, all there has ever been and why things exist is because of matter. All there is is matter that's in motion. And so when they read a story like this, they think, well, humans are just trying to come up with ways of explaining what happened, which ironically they do as well, right? Because they have their story that they tell about how creation happened. Whereas uh, biblical theism says, no, there is a personal God and that God creates everything and he sustains what we see and he governs what we see and he has created a certain kind of order to the world so that things function a certain way, and yet he is able to act in this world to uh, do things that may not exactly be according to uh, how things normally, normally work for his own purposes. And so as we come to, to Genesis one through three, obviously our answer to that question is going to impact our reading of the Bible. Um, Poitras writes, he says, the issue of God is monumentally important. If God is not a God, such as the Bible describes, then either the Bible's a lie or it has to be radically reinterpreted. And that's what people do. Much of the academic study of the Bible at major universities of the world takes place under the assumption that the way we read the Bible must harmonize with modern ideas about the world. Hence, this academic study corrupts the Bible. And then this corruption travels out into general culture. But in fact, God exists, the same God that the Bible describes. Therefore, the elite people in Western culture are walking in the dark about God. It's the culture, not the Bible, that has to be radically reinterpreted. Genesis 1 through 3 is one text, a crucial text, that shows the massive difference between the Bible's view of God and the common modern Western views. And so, as believers, we come to Genesis 1 believing in this personal God, but part of what makes it a challenge to read these chapters, honestly, is that there's a lot of pressure to think differently. And to read Genesis well, we have to fight against some of those pressures. There's something that um, another uh, um, professor uh, named Charles Taylor, he talks about something called the social imaginary. So this is kind of an interesting concept, but he says, say you talk to your neighbor. I'd say you talk to five neighbors. One of the things that you'll often find is that they are like quoting philosophers from like 300 years ago without realizing they're quoting philosophers from 300 years ago. 
And so they've just kind of absorbed ideas about how things are that, that just, it's like they didn't go to read this guy named Rousseau. But they're, and they probably, maybe many of them wouldn't even know, maybe here they would, but maybe many of them wouldn't even know who Rousseau is. And yet if you look at their view of certain things and what Rousseau taught, it's like almost word for word. And so I think we just have to appreciate that even as believers, some of that stuff is so, so deep in us that we really have to, as we come to the Bible, pray that God helps us come humbly to hear what he actually has to say and not, and not fight, against, fight against him. I think another, we were talking the other, just last night about marriage roles, since we talked about marriage last week, and I was just thinking, yeah, submission is a good example, roles of husband and wife. There's a pretty strong social imaginary <laughs> that even as a believer who grew up in church, my, some of my instincts with, with what the Bible teaches about that might be like, whoa, you know? And of course, I have to make sure that I'm actually hearing what the Bible says correctly and not distorting it according to my culture uh, or what my culture has told me about distortions of what the Bible teaches. And the same is true. The point is the same is true when it comes to Genesis 1 through 3. We have to remind ourselves as we come to these ch- chapters that it's not going to be very surprising that we interpret them differently because we, we actually believe in a personal God who can act in this world to do what he wants. And that a lot of people don't, they don't, they just don't. They, if at best they think God started the world and now is totally removed from the world and he, 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 he's pretty much almost, I don't know, handcuffed. He doesn't or he's just uninterested and the world just functions how it, how it functions, which we don't believe. <laughs> Second, he says, we have to remember who wrote the Bible. So we have to remember who God is. This is simple, but a lot of our problems start here. But we have to remember who wrote the Bible. And uh, who wrote the Bible matters. Um, if man is the final author of Scripture... If we think, okay, this was uh, just a bunch of guys that thought, I, I want to tell some stories, then we can expect there, it's just ideas. Uh, we can expect there to be errors. And honestly, uh, nowadays, we probably wouldn't have much time for it because we think everything new is better than what's old. So we're like, we kind of been told that man is constantly progressing and what, that's sort of what we believe nowadays, that the people in the old days didn't have much, they didn't know much, they were ignorant. But if God is the one who actually wrote this book, that changes things. Um, as we come to Genesis, uh, we believe that Genesis has God as the divine author who guided the human author. As a result, Genesis is the written word of God, God's own speech in written form. And so how does that impact our reading? Obviously, it makes, uh, we've said this before, but it makes this book authoritative. Um, I think he says, I'm trying to make this not boring by just reading it, so, <laughs> but that probably makes it more complicated for you as you're trying to follow along. But he says at the top of maybe the second page, he says, clearly the issue of divine authorship makes a difference in what meanings come out at the end because misjudgment about who the author is leads to a misjudgment about what he means. Or according to some postmodern interpretive approaches, verbal texts and the readers who interact with texts float in a sea of meanings, more or less independent of either God or human authors. But this kind of multiplications of meanings is a mistake because it discounts the unique authority of God to say what he means and to do so with unique authority. And so... uh, we come to Genesis 1 and through 3 and believe that it's, if we believe it's written by humans, then we can pretty much do with it what we want. But if we believe that it's written by God, then it's going to have authority over us and we can count on it. Um, and we know it's relevant, even if it was written thousands of years ago, uh, because if God is behind this, we're not going to outgrow it uh, or move past it to something better. And so we need to come to this text uh, submissive. 
and uh, come trusting. One of the funny things about America, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but coming back to America, one thing I, I've noticed about America is that, and so I might be wrong and this might be, um, this might be offensive, but uh, one thing I've noticed about America is it feels like um, we're willing to argue with anyone even if we don't know anything. So like, say you get a guy that like has like 17 PhDs in Ugaritic or something, some ancient language, and like you get an American with him and he's talking about Ugaritic and the American's like, oh, I don't know, I don't think that that probably means that or something. You're like, I saw on Google that like, no, Ugaritic doesn't mean that. I was like, whoa, bro, how, you know, have some respect. Like, how do you think you can argue with that guy? You like looked up Ugaritic on Google as he was talking, you know? It's, it's, it's kind of in, in impressive. And um, sometimes I suppose that means we like push back against established ideas and we can come up with innovations. So that part maybe is helpful, but sometimes it's, 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 uh, a little bit embarrassing, I think, especially when you're arguing, you're willing to argue with God. So like as we, as we come to the Bible, it's just we want to come learning, we want to come asking. God is so patient, God is so kind, but he also, like, he just, he knows every single person's thoughts in the whole world right now from like 50 years ago. You know, like he know his mind, if you met somebody who knew what every single person in here was thinking, just in one day, and could recite it, you would be like, what kind of, you'd be like slow to argue with that guy. Like, what kind of memory does that guy have? What kind of mind does that guy have? And so when we talk about God, we're talking about someone who understands billions and billions of people and all of their thoughts all in the same moment. And that's just like one aspect of his knowledge. That's just like a small aspect of his knowledge. And so it's just important as we come to the Bible that we come with some humility, remembering who, who, who wrote this. Um, third, we're just looking at some of these basic principles that are going to help us as we interpret Genesis 1 through 3. First two are pretty obvious. We believe in God, <laughs> and so it's not surprising. We think he can do things that are different than other people can do, and uh, we believe the Bible's God's word, which means that we approach it differently than other people might. And third, we believe, uh, or third, we have to talk about the genre of Genesis. And so genre, I've talked about this before, but this is actually a pretty important question. Um, what is genre and why does it matter? We all sort of instinctively know what genre is. Uh, when we pick up a newspaper and we read the cartoons, we don't think of that as the same as like reading uh, an article on the first page. Now, I mean, nowadays, I can't even talk about the newspapers like that because it is kind of all the same, but, <laughs> but you get the idea of, of uh, genre. When I read poetry and somebody says, uh, you know, when I read Song of Solomon and I read it talk about a wife being like a gazelle or something, I don't, don't say, oh, man, this guy's so primitive. He thought that women were gazelles or, or, or something weird like that. And uh, the Bible has different genres, obviously. So, like, we have psalms, we have uh, sermons, we have parables, we have uh, prophecies, we have uh, historical books. And uh, we need to learn to read those different genres uh, differently. So if somebody's reading poetry and uh, explaining poetry, and uh, he says, you know, I'm just literal. I'm just, I believe in reading the Bible literally. And he says, you know, that Solomon thought a woman was a certain way from the book of Song of Solomons. You'd be like, that's actually not reading the Bible. You're not doing justice to what the author meant. That's not, it's not literal. You know, that's, that's just being weird, because that genre we know is intended to communicate a certain way. And so it is important to ask what, what genre is Genesis? And uh, we actually, you know, in the, I was thinking the other day, there actually are different creation accounts in the Bible. And uh, Genesis 1 through 
too is the one that we're used to, but Job, the end of Job, has a creation account um, that is poetry, very poetic. Uh, Psalms, the book of Psalms, has creation accounts that are very poetic. And so if they were put there at the beginning of Genesis, we would do something a little different with them, all right? Even as we interpret them, we do something a little different with them because we know clearly they are poetry. And so we have to ask, if we're going to interpret Genesis 1 through 3, Correctly, what kind of um, genre is it? And it matters because uh, God chose the genre. And he chose that genre to communicate a certain way. Um, at the end of page two, sort of in uh, almost towards the last paragraph, it says, or in the middle of the, that paragraph there, it says, each literary section of the Bible was crafted by God as well as by the human author. It is exactly what God designed to say, not only in its contents, but also in all its details, including the features of genre. If we respect God, then we should take into account how he chooses to communicate. It would be a mistake, for example, if an interpreter were to treat Jesus' parable of the lost sheep as if it were a non-fictional account that is merely about one shepherd and one sheep. So yeah, if you came to church and I preached on that story of the lost sheep, and my main point was, you know, like, I want to talk to those of you who are shepherds today. Um, the rest of you, you guys can just, you know, listen in. And uh, if you have a lost sheep and you're a shepherd, leave the 99 and go get it. Go get that lost sheep. And then I close the Bible and went home, you'd be like, no, <laughs> that's not... You didn't do a good job, because that's not the point of that. That's not what that, that's not about uh, shepherds and, and sheep so much and what they're supposed to do. And we know that because of the genre. It's a fictional story with a spiritual point, and we don't really have a problem with that. The point is indicated at the end. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And of course, we don't say then, like, Jesus was a liar you know, because he said there was a shepherd who had, you know, a lost sheep. We, we, we recognize that, like, oh, okay, he's telling a story a certain way, and this is how that story, story functions. Um, even when Jesus says, I am, uh, what, what some of the things, I am the bread of life. We don't say, well, Jesus, you're not a loaf. Uh, are you a liar? You're, you're not a loaf. No, we know, okay, this is how language works, this is how people communicate. And so as we come to Genesis 1 through 3, then we do need to ask, what kind of genre is it? That's a legitimate uh, question. And one of the ways he says we ought to answer this, uh, if we look at the, maybe the third page, he says, what kind of genre is Genesis 1 through 3? We need to start by considering the book of Genesis as a whole. Uh, it's a, the book as a whole that guides our understanding of each part Within it, the book as a whole has some poetry in it, for sure, and we've talked about that in the past. But as a whole, it's Hebrew prose narrative. It's similar in character to the other Old Testament books of narrative, such as Numbers, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So, what kind of narrative is it? Is it? Um, it's it's telling a story. It's it's like narrative, but is it fictional narrative? Because you could have that, um, or is it nonfiction? And um, as we look at Genesis, we see, uh, no, this, this is written like nonfiction. Um, Moses is using Genesis to uh, talk to the nation of Israel. Israel's a real nation in Exodus. And uh, Genesis reads like Exodus, really. It reads just like we're reading Exodus. Um, there's, no, uh, there's nothing in Genesis that indicates um, that we're, we're reading something different than Moses' understanding of, of reality or God's understanding of reality. And when we read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob later in the Bible, it's clear that the people who wrote about them later in the Bible thought that they were real. Um, they didn't talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as some fictional characters from the past, and certainly Jesus didn't, and definitely Paul didn't. You know, Paul made whole arguments based on um, Abraham and what happened with Abraham, and even made whole arguments based on what happened to Adam. 
And so the book of Genesis is intended to be read as nonfiction narrative. Now the next question, of course, would be, um, well, somebody could say they're writing nonfiction narrative but be lying to you. And uh, that might be true if uh, it were just a human writing Genesis, but it's God who's writing this book. And uh, God is true, so he says what's true. And so uh, as we look at Genesis 1 through 3, we're not reading just sort of a fairy tale, and uh, it doesn't, it's not written to tell us a fairy tale. It's written to tell us about events that happened in the real world. So a fourth, a fourth issue, I suppose you might say, um, is uh, the ancient Near East. You can see that at the end, the ancient Near East. Now, this is something that you hear a lot about now, nowadays. In fact, I just um, was listening to someone talk about this the other day. Um, because in the last 100 or 200 years, there's been like a lot of research into uh, the world surrounding the Israelites. Um, I think it was maybe the early 1900s, late 1800s, all of a sudden, this field, Assyriology, took off, and now it's even branched out from that. And so they're actually reading and discovering, like, a lot of stories and uh, gathering a lot of information about the groups of people that lived around Israel in the time when Moses was was writing this book. And uh, some of that information is actually really helpful. So, and, and actually uh, super fascinating. So uh, one obvious example of that is the fact that there are like all kinds of flood stories. So the flood story in the Bible is not the only flood story. Uh, another example of that would be that um, the, the, the story of Moses, the way that he's rescued from the water has some parallels to uh, some Egyptian stories about some of their heroes. Um, so there are, the, the, and then like I said, I think I said, there also are um, creation accounts uh, that from those days. Um, and uh, some, some understanding of that actually is, is helpful. Um, I, uh, I just read a book called Created Equal, and it's by, um, it's actually basically looking at Genesis, Deuteronomy, Genesis through Deuteronomy in comparison with um, the um, way religion was used in the societies around uh, Israel. And uh, it's just fascinating because Basically, what he demonstrates is that in the societies around Israel, kings used religion. Basically, now, of course, I'm overgeneralizing, but basically kings used religion to legitimatize their powerful positions. And so um, they would basically say the king is the agent of the god or the king functions in a way that is analogous to the way the gods function. And so, for example, in the um, creations, one of the creation stories around uh, Israel, uh, there were all these gods, and they were, or, there were basically hierarchy, social classes among the gods, and the, the lower gods got tired of working for the higher gods, and they basically went on strike and uh, the higher gods and the lower gods got together and they're like, what should we do? Because we're tired of doing all your work. And they decided, let's make humans. And so the purpose of the creation of humans was to do the work of the gods. And um, the king basically then represented the gods uh, to, these, to these humans. Um, and... Uh, the king in these stories was the one who was made in the image of God, or the king in these stories was the one who was um, the, 
called by God to exercise dominion and bring order to the world on behalf of the gods. And the point of this book, Created Equal, to come back to what I was talking about, the point of the book, Created Equal, is that if you look at the story of Genesis through Deuteronomy, it's like in total opposition to that because it's, it's all humans that are made in the image of God. In fact, in the world around Israel, the person who was given the law was the king. You know, the king was the one who, people didn't read the law or have the law or have actually access to the gods. It was the king or this group of elite priests who had access to the gods. And so God actually comes here and he gives his law to all of Israel and he calls all of them kingdom, he calls them a, a kingdom of priests. And then actually, if you think about Moses and you think about the way Genesis through Deuteronomy talks about kings, it's really, uh, it doesn't exalt, Moses doesn't even get to go into the land at the end of the day. And uh, the uh, instruction Moses gives about kings we're going to see when we get to Deuteronomy, is all intended to keep the king very low so he doesn't, actually, he doesn't actually do what kings do to be able to grab more power over people. But anyway, so the point is, there is, there, there's some, there is value uh, in, in understanding some things about the ancient Near East, and yet um, some people will take this to the extreme, really, and they'll say, this is just another um, example like of ancient Near East. When we read Genesis 1 through 3, either this is just another example of ancient Near Eastern mythology, um, or they'll say that um, Moses was only writing to, conf- to confront ancient Near Eastern um, mythology. And certainly he is doing a little bit of that. But Poitras points out three problems with the way some people talk about the uh, ancient Near Eastern worldview and creation. He says, one, it's easy to exaggerate uh, the parallels between Genesis 1 and the ancient Near East. It's natural for there to be some overlap in references to the world, whether true or false. Stories about how the world began are going to refer to major visible pieces of the world. So we're going to hear about water and earth and sky But the contrasts between the Bible and the ancient Near East are notable. The first contrast is between the gross polytheism of the ancient Near East and the sublime monotheism of Genesis 1. God corrects ancient Near Eastern thinking and practice rather than merely reaffirming it. Second, the genre is different. Genesis is not a self-standing narrative. It's embedded in a story that leads all the way up to the brink of Exodus from Egypt. Moreover, as we observed earlier, Genesis is prose. The main Near Eastern accounts are poetic and uh, also usually gross. If you read the stories, what they have the gods doing, and it's, it's, it's definitely gross. And then finally, Genesis, when the way Moses writes the story, uh, he, he says he does not directly attack polytheism and idolatry. There are passages that do attack it directly. Genesis 1 does its work indirectly. It does not directly criticize idol worship. Rather, it presents in a positive way the truth about the one true God who made all things. Genesis 1 implies that since everything other than God is made by God, these things that are made are not supposed to be worshipped. The consequence of this approach is that Genesis 1 is further removed from the competing ancient Near Eastern narratives. It does not ask for a direct comparison. Rather, it stands majestically alone. There's nothing like Genesis anywhere outside the Bible. For that reason, it needs to be read and interpreted in its own right. We should respect how it differs from the ancient Near Eastern cultures around it. So God was kind. He, uh, he talked to the ancient Israelites in ways that made sense to them. But he was able to say something new and, and different as well. Um, Okay, another question that he asks is, what should we do with um, modern science? And uh, he answers, well, one thing we should do is be thankful. (laughs) Um, Modern science has a lot of benefits, and we're we're grateful for those. Um, And then he says, I'm not able to deal with everything, of course, but he does offer some, some observations. And um, one of those observations is that 
modern scientific research and reflection has many benefits, but it's not immune from the influence of the surrounding cultural atmosphere. In particular, philosophical materialism has an influence. It puts pressure on scientists to treat the world as reducible to matter and motion and to deny the existence of God in practice. Clearly, the existence, the implications of this framework are inevitably going to clash with the Bible because the two worldviews, the modern one and the biblical one, are in conflict. And uh, that's, that's an important point. There are different views of how science works. So one would be there's no God. There's just this world, and the scientist is observing the world and how it functions. And then the other would be there is a creator God who is speaking and acting, and he's involved in this world, and the scientist is observing the ways in which he is involved in this world. And so um, we should be thankful for science, but also uh, recognize that uh, it's not an authority certainly over God, and that... um, Scientists are not completely neutral either. Um, Then he says there's a difference between experimental sciences and historical sciences, and we should recognize that. Um, In experimental sciences, as the label suggests, scientists conduct experiments. They postulate regularities on the basis of repeated observations under controlled laboratory conditions. The impressive practical benefits of the sciences derive almost wholly from experimental sciences. Historical sciences, by contrast, are investigations that try to reconstruct the past. Direct experiments cannot be conducted on the past because the past is permanently gone until we get like a time machine. And here it gets challenging because there are key events in the past that occurred only once in the whole history of the universe. Man came on the scene once. Each new kind of animal appeared once. The universe itself came into being once. These events are exceptional, and since God exists, they may be miraculous events. They may be outside the scope of regularities that experimental scientists can currently observe. And, uh, you know, a good question when we think about the creation of the world to always ask is, like, were you there, you know? Um, So if you weren't there, you probably should have some humility about about it. Um, And... I would say trust somebody who who was actually there. Uh, and then finally, I, you know, it's a big world, and people are constantly learning. So it's important to remember uh, if we were talking about this 100 years ago with a group of people who thought they really knew, we'd be like, embar- if we could go back in time and talk to them with what we know now, we'd be like, oh, you guys are, what are you talking about? 100 years from now, there's going to be people looking at us and being like, I can't believe you believed that at that point. It's a big world, and uh, we don't know everything. And so uh, we need to, to remember that, even as we think about science and the Bible. And then, almost finally, he, uh, this is as we think about how to interpret um, Genesis 1 through 3, he talks about the use of analogies. And so he's... Um, He's saying, um, God, here, he only wrote one, he basically wrote two chapters on the whole creation of the world, and we said this at at another place. He wrote how many chapters on the tabernacle? So so God is, he's interested in in things a little differently than than we are. Um, And when he spoke to uh, people, he spoke in ordinary ways that they could understand. So God's not up in heaven thinking, I need to impress the scientists in the 21st century by the way I write Genesis chapter 1. Um, I, he's God. He knows way more than they know anyway. And he wants to write what's helpful to us. And so what he does in Genesis is talk to ordinary people about what they most need to know. And so if you come to chat this chapter trying to figure out things that he doesn't think you need to most need to know you don't be surprised that you don't find the answers here the secret things belong to God but the things revealed belong to us and to our children and so if God doesn't reveal it you can spend all your time trying to find it in there but you're not going to find it in there Um, and what he thinks we need to know is that he's the almighty God we need to know that he created everything we can see we need to know that why he created what he created so he is, uh, 
using ordinary language to explain uh, what he um, what he has done in this world, and so um, we need to to appreciate that as we read these chapters. God um, in the Bible uh, is stooping down to speak in a way that we can understand, and that's instead of getting upset about with him about that, we should be thankful because if he wanted to, you know, he could talk. Genesis 1 and 2 in a way that would blow our minds and none of us would have any idea what he's talking about (laughs) because his mind is so much greater uh, than ours. And so here he's stooping down, he's using ordinary words. Uh, He's actually, he's he's speaking at a period of time um, in a certain culture in a way that's true. That's, That's the one thing that's important as we talk about God stooping down to use ordinary language. He's not lying as he does that. Um, and he's not going to say things are one way um, that when they actually aren't that way just because he's trying to talk to people in a way they can understand. Um, but the reality is, as we look at this chapter, uh, everything it says is true, um, but he's not, he's not talking the way a scientist might. He's not explaining what the sun is made of, or he's not talking about how far away the sun is, because that's not really what he's interested in helping us understand. Instead, a lot of what he's doing is describing um, things in a way that we might see them so so that we can know what's important about this world and why he created it and how he created it. And then uh, finally, he says the last thing he says as he talks about how to um, interpret Genesis 1 through 3, he says the basic guidelines for interpreting Genesis 1 through 3 derive from Scripture itself. If we follow the guide of Scripture, we will read Genesis 1 through 3 with understanding. We will not have all our questions answered because Genesis 1 through 3 does not say everything that could be said about the details of how God did things. Much remains mysterious, but we do gain from Genesis 1 through 3 a true understanding of reality. God created the world and mankind. Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden. Those were real events in uh, space and time. So, how to interpret Genesis 1 through 3, some basic some basic thoughts, basic ideas.